This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here today um, and for joining us for the Chancellor's Colloquium Distinguished Speaker Series. We are very pleased today to have with us uh, Dr. Kumar Patel, a professor of physics and electrical engineering at UCLA and inventor of the carbon dioxide laser. Dr. Patel will open with some prepared remarks, as we norm- normally do with our series, and then um, he will be joined on stage uh, by Dean Enrique Lavernia, who will talk briefly with Dr. Patel before moderating a question and answer period. I would like at this point to introduce our guest speaker and moderator for this evening, and I will start, of course, with our colleague, uh, Dean Enrique Lavernia, who is going to be the moderator. Enrique um, started as a dean here in the College of Engineering in 2002, and with a um, two-year break when he served us as a provost, um, he uh, went back to engineering from, um, in fact, 2011, and until today, he's serving as the dean there. Uh, before arriving at Davis, Enrique was chair and chancellor's professor at the Department of Chemical Engineering and Material Science at UC Irvine. He's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, the ASM International, and the Alexander for Humboldt Foundation. He has received many, many awards, and I'm not going to go through the extensive list. I will say the most recent one was the 2013 ASM International Gold Medal Award. Um, Enrique holds a faculty appointment within the Department of Chemical Engineering Material Science at UC Davis, and uh, he has now he's there as a distinguished faculty. So Enrique, thank you so much for offering to be our moderator today. Now, I'm very pleased and very honored to introduce our distinguished guest, Dr. Kumar Patel. Dr. Patel was formerly Vice Chancellor for Research at UCLA from 1993 to 1999 and is currently CEO and Chairman of the Board at Pranalytica, a manufacturer of technologically advanced gas-sensing instruments and infrared laser systems based in Santa Monica a professor of physics with a joint appointment in electrical engineering at UCLA, Dr. Patel invented the carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and the spin-flip Raman lasers, and pioneered the use of these and other lasers to measure trace gases in difficult environments. In recognition of these fundamental advances, Dr. Patel has been nominated for the Nobel Prize multiple times. 
He was at AT&T Bell Laboratories, now Lucent Technologies, for 32 years as Executive Director of the Physics Division and the Materials Research Division. Dr. Patel was elected to the National Academy of Science in 1974 and the National Academy of Engineering in 1978. He received the National Medal of Science given by the President of the United States in 1996. In recognition of the CO2 laser's importance to the medical field, he has been elected as an honorary member of the Gynecologic Laser Surgery Society in 1980 and 1985. He was elected as an honorary member of the American Society for Laser Medicine and Surgery. So it's great to have uh, with us Dr. Patel, and I would like to invite him to come forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Chancellor Katei, for that really glowing introduction. I hope uh, I will live up to the uh, introduction and uh, walk you through some of the comments I want to make today before uh, we go into the question-answer period. Um, what I want to do today in the next 15, 20 minutes or so is to uh, talk about a topic that's uh, very close to my uh, current uh, activities, quantum cascade lasers. And what I, want, what I want to talk about is how we took that particular type of laser from lab curiosity to a tool. Actually, what I really want to talk about is how to convert ideas into products. And I'm going to use the example of the, my company as a way to tell you about what we did wrong, what we did right, and perhaps uh, um, during question-answer period, you can ask me why we didn't do something right or we should have done something differently. So um, the, this is a case study um, of, 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 of my company. Um, we are a privately held company, and... Um, we did not start off as a laser company. We started off with a very um, lofty goal of uh, having medical diagnostics through breath analysis, uh, principally to, to, to provide care for individuals um, at a lower cost than what, what happens today. This was a very successful technology. Um, uh, we could measure parts per billion and some subparts per billion of variety of gases. We went through successful clinical trials funded by NIH. And uh, being a sort of novice in the area of starting companies, uh, realized that uh, we had not lined up the customers ahead of time. Um, I'll come back to that when I uh, talk about uh, uh, what we did right and what we did wrong. But the, the short and the long of it, the short of it is that um, the, that particular market was very slow to develop, and we uh, changed our market focus, not technology, but market focus, and found new potential markets for that technology that developed, that measured sub-part per billion levels of gases in air, or the, the, the pollutants in air. Um, these were the semiconductor fab line people, and the, 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 and the environmental applications. And this turned out to be a very, very successful uh, the, the technology penetration and market penetration. The thing that changed the company completely was uh, uh, 
a project manager at DARPA found out what we are doing in terms of selling commercial products that measured parts per billion level of pollutants in, in ordinary air. And so they pose us a challenge. If you can measure parts per billion of, let's say, ammonia or sulfur dioxide, can you measure chemical warfare agents? Remember, this was a time about 2002, 2003. Um, uh, um, uh, Saddam Hussein was supposed to have had a whole bunch of chemical warfare agents, and the idea was uh, if, if we have our troops there, uh, they, they will need help. So can you, can you convert this technology for measuring subparts per billion of chemical warfare agents and explosives? Um, we showed it could be done. Um, basically, we modified what we had at that time, is a carbon dioxide laser-based instrument to measure chemical warfare agents. Um, DARPA being what it is, they were not satisfied. What they said, look, what you have is, is an instrument that weighs 175 pounds. A soldier can't carry it. Make something which is only 20 pounds. And so that's what brought us into quantum cascade lasers because that replaces the CO2 laser which weighs, weighs 60 or 70 pounds with something that weighs two ounces. So um, that turned out to be, we were quite successful there. And of course, um, as, as DARPA always does it, they said, you know, that's good, but, but we have a much more difficult problem now. These terrorists have acquired shoulder fire missiles and they are firing these weapons at our, at our airplanes, aircraft in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So we need a different kind of laser, much more powerful laser, and can you develop that? And so the, the ultimate outcome of all of this was that while we started off as a company that was going to change the medical diagnostics, we ended up doing something completely different, very successful, but now we have come 180 degrees around and we can apply the same technology to our original sensor. So let me say a few, few words about what, what the company does, what quantum cascade lasers are, because if I'm going to t t tell you why they are so good, you should know at least what they are. So um, what I've shown on this slide are two different kinds of lasers. I think all of us, most of the people are familiar with, with the laser that is shown on the left-hand side. Don't worry about the details. That's the kind of laser that goes into a handheld pointer. Um, typical color of the handheld pointer is red sometimes green, but uh, it's in the visible region. Um, once that, that particular material is built, that particular laser is defined, you can't change the color. For different colors, you need different composition of materials. Um, quantum cascade lasers are, are completely different in the sense that you don't change the materials. What you do is you change the thickness of various layers. So on the right-hand side is the a artist depiction, my depiction of what a, what a quantum cascade laser is. And so what you find is, um, this is the only, only time I will invoke quantum, quantum mechanics. When you put a particle in a very small box, it can no longer move with continuous velocities. If, for example, I, can, if I were to move from here to there, I can move with any, any speed that I want. But if I were a particle and put it into a small enough box, I can move only with certain fixed velocities. So what that does is it creates distinct energy levels inside for the electrons. Transitions between this give me laser radiation. 
and you change the spacing between this is by changing the thickness. If I make the particle box small, the levels become farther apart. If I move them farther apart, the levels come closer. So there is a very, very convenient way of changing the energy of the photon that comes out. The only unfortunate part is that that system works only in the infrared region at wavelengths longer than maybe three and a half microns. But that's not all that bad because that's where some of the most important, most interesting scientific and technological questions lie. Apart from that, even many of the practical applications such as defending airplanes from shoulder fire missiles lies there. So in a sense, that is a different kind of laser. Um, again, I won't go through the details, but what we brought to the table, that laser was invented in 1994 at Bell Labs. Now my claim to fame is not having invented the laser, but having hired the guy who invented the laser into Bell Labs. <laughs> so, 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 so in this particular case, my claim to fame is that I identified a, 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 a genius. Be that as it may, um, once, when we got started with the, on the DARPA program, as I said, the quantum cascade lasers were laboratory curiosities. You could buy one, but you had to have half a dozen PhDs hanging around to make this thing work. Clearly, that's, that, that, that's not how one makes an instrument, makes it a practical device. And so our contribution, my company's contribution, was to take that device, a tiny device, something less than one-tenth of a thickness of a hair, maybe five, five millimeters long, and convert it into something that I can package in a box, give it to you, and all you got to do is to turn the switch on, and it will work every time. That's what you need to be able to do if you're going to use any kind of technology, any kind of new idea, to convert that into a product. So message number one, technology is great, but there is a long path between technology and a product that's going to make anybody any money. What my company did was we changed the original design of the laser completely to the point where we have now fundamental patterns which allow us to make the best quantum cassette lasers in anywhere in the world. This is, this is what we are able to do. Highest power, highest performance lasers. And this slide shows the kind of things that we have been able to do. And, and, and there are a couple of wavelengths listed. Wavelength describes its color primarily. Um, again, to remind you, wavelength of what we see as light, light that we see is roughly... Uh, 0 .4, 0.4 micrometers to 0 0.7 micrometers. These, these lasers, let's say 4 microns, it's 10 times as long a wavelength. You can't see it, but if you are irradiated with a, with a light beam, you'll feel heat. So th th this is what's called infrared. And the, f the first two wavelengths, 4 microns and 4.6 microns, are important for protect protecting aircraft from shoulder fire missiles. The other wavelengths are important for detection of chemical warfare agents and explosives. So we have a whole range of wavelengths that we, that, we, that, that we are able to make. The key point here is the power output. Now, this doesn't sound like a whole lot of power output compared to another one of my favorite lasers, the carbon dioxide laser, which, uh, you know, a box maybe of this size will produce several hundred watts of power output. But it will weigh 200 pounds. You know, and, and as I said earlier, what you really want is something very light. So... Power is lower, but it comes with many other advantages. And some of, the, some of the advantages are listed here. This is what I've tried to do here is to give you a, 
the reason why this laser which was first made to operate in 1994 first commercially available laser was 2006 we are the first ones to brought it to the market why in a very short period of time it has become i wouldn't call it the best thing since sliced bread but pretty close to it very close to it uh, so what this slide shows is comparison with what else is around in this particular wavelength region and why this really makes sense the most important thing without worrying about what the the, the different lasers to optical parametric oscillators to co2 lasers so and everything else either they are bulky either they are heavy or they require another laser to make the this particular type of laser so by the time you go through all of this chain you have lost a whole bunch of efficiency efficiency of converting electrical power into optical power is very low for any kind of application you need high high efficiency and so so quantum cascade lasers one they are direct electrically pumped they are solids once made and if it works it'll work forever there is nothing to wear out unlike in a carbon dioxide laser the gas mixture may have to be replaced after a few years or or what have you if it falls down because there is it may go out of alignment it'll break this is incredibly rugged covers a very broad wavelength region from 3.8 micrometers to longer than 12 micrometers everything that you want to do can be done with this this one particular laser so the thing that i was talking about was taking something like this from from a laboratory curiosity to a tool what's required first of all it's got to be air cooled nobody wants to carry around liquid nitrogen with you if if you if you're making an instrument should have a single point power supply so that people don't have to fidget with the power supply just flip a switch it should work there should be a clean and logical human interface so that the user sees exactly what's happening and most importantly it requires very very high reliability so if i take all of that if i do all of that even then there is something else that comes into into picture how can i if you are a customer how can i convince you that you should buy this particular type of laser as opposed to something else so here are some of the requirements you need to have high power obviously because without power you can't do anything room temperature operation need to have high wall plug efficiency efficiency of converting electric electricity into photons should a good good beam quality so that i can project the beam over very long distances um should a beam good beam stability so that once it is designed the beam won't wander as as the laser ages should be should have high reliability long lifetime and ruggedness um if i'm going to put one of these lasers on an airplane or a, or a, or a helicopter it is subject to a lot of vibrations a lot of shocks should be able to work um without going through details we have tested our lasers up to 1100 g's 1100 g's is a shock one and a half times that you'll have if this laser was sitting on a top of a gun and you fired the gun so in a sense this laser now is qualified not only for mounting on 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 a rifle for example but also going on uh, the, the rockets and everything else so the question is what what do some of these systems look like so on the top right hand corner is a typical system if you are a customer if you are a uh, university uh, researcher researcher in uh, defense establishment this is what you would buy a laser package which sits here and a power supply 
the power supply the, that, the, the front face tells you the, what the laser is doing. You flip a switch. Every time you flip a switch, the power, it, it, it works. But for industries like Northrop Grumman and BAE Systems and Lockheed Martin, they don't want to buy the whole, this whole thing. What they want is something which is they can just take the laser itself, build their system around it, and so we, this is what goes inside that box, what you see here. Its uh, package volume is less than 50 uh, so cubic centimeters, and the weight is less than 100 grams. That produces 5 watts of power output. And so that's, in some sense, in this wavelength region, that's the highest amount of power output per ounce, if you want to call it. There is another application. What you see here is, is, a, is a big box. Um, we, we have seen laser pointers that people hold in hand. There are similar pointers, similar applications in the infrared. Again, fortunately or, or unfortunately, these are all defense or homeland security applications. What you like to have is a little pointer that you point at if that, that glass which is sitting there and be able to say what's inside the glass or what's outside the glass, is it dangerous or not. This is for detection of um, improvised explosive devices, the things that kill the largest number of people in Afghanistan today. Somebody leaves a package by the side of the road which is detonated either remotely or by, the, by some kind of proximity fuse. And you want to be able to tell what it is before a soldier goes there and tries to examine it. So you need something portable, light. And one of the things we found was that these lasers can be made very small, will work at room temperature with very high wall plug efficiency to the point where one can make a broad range of products. So some of the products that, that, that we make, and I'll say a little bit more about this thing in the middle here, that's our smallest laser that anybody has made in this, in this particular wavelength region. The whole thing weighs less than two ounces, produces four watts, requires 12-volt battery power to power it. So that's, this, is the, this is the bottom line. It works at 10% wall plug efficiency, which implies that if I had two AA batteries... Actually, I need four AA batteries because I need 12 volts. But uh, th 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 in enough batteries, four AA batteries will run it for several hours at two watt of power output. Something that, 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 that a soldier needs to have in his hand because he can't constantly go around changing batteries, nor can he recharge the batteries. There is the long and short of that is that now we can make instrumentation which can be very compact. Here is what we call a standoff explosive sensor. The example I gave, I see a briefcase sitting 50 meters from here. Um, I'm supposed to find out whether I should approach it or not. If I go cl close enough, I, it'll probably explode and I'll, I'll be killed. And you have seen that movie, The Hurt Locker, where th 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 there is a physical object there. Should you go close to it or not? We have now developed an instrumentation that you see there. The rectangular box contains lasers. The, the big tube that you see, which is basically an empty tube, has a telescope which looks at the object that, that, that you want to interrogate. Sends out a laser pulse, and what comes back brings back, bring, brings back with it information about what is on the surface of, the, of, of, of this physical object. And this, this uh, instrumentation was tested at China Lake. China Lake has a very large naval facility where you can have explosives out in the open. 
uh, to see how well it works. It worked exceedingly well. Um, it's fairly small. This is, this is how it is used. A person can hold it on the shoulder. It's roughly 20 pounds. And basically a soldier can carry and make things happen. So starting from a company which was going to do one thing, we have completely come, come around to making something else which is of enormous value in these days of what I call global terrorism, where we can help the country do something of, something of value. So there are a number of applications. Let me skip past that point. And again, I think, as I said, what I really want to focus on is what have we learned out of this? What have I learned out of this exercise? Converting ideas into product. So if, if this is what we want to do, I have an idea, I want to convert it to product, what do I need? So first of all, you have to have an idea. You don't have to have an idea. If somebody else has an idea, identify a good one. Makes no difference where the idea came from. The important thing is identify a good idea. The second most important thing is match the new capability with the potential opportunity. Having just technology by itself isn't going to do anybody any good. And most importantly, recognize what you need to take it from an idea to a potential product. Resources, which is people, money, and infrastructure. Next thing is you, you, you need to convert that into opportunity into solutions because the customer does not buy technology. Customer has a problem, and he, he or she is looking for a solution. And you have to be able to match what you are providing with, 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 with what will solve the problem. And as, I, as I've been saying over and over again, technology is not the same as solution. You need to identify customers early, long before the product comes to the market. And if something goes wrong, you should be sufficiently agile in changing direction if necessary. So now the question is, did we do it right? <clears throat> so here is what I call my scorecard of good and bad. My scorecard of good and bad is idea. I think it was a really good idea, non-invasive medical diagnostics. So that, I mean, I think, you know, I can't think of any, any, anything better technology can bring to the, to the people. <clears throat> it's a great problem. There is a great market opportunity. We have, a, we have an aging population. Need to contain medical diagnostic costs, and you need real-time diagnosis. If I can tell you that you have potentially liver problem while you are still in the office, while I'm, while I'm carrying out the test, I can do something very quickly. You don't go away and, and forget about it, not come back two weeks later to find out what's, what's wrong. So clearly, having real-time diagnostics has, has enormous value. We were able to line up resources. We succeeded in attracting outstanding people and raising capital. We also got NIH funding for carrying out the extensive tests, clinical tests. So we did convert good R&D into a good product. Now comes the bad part. The bad part is we did not speak with the customers early enough. Customers, in this case, being physicians, dialysis centers, hospitals, etc. What we found out that these people don't buy instruments. They want to lease the instruments. Now for a startup company, when am I, where am I going to get the money for? My money from to, be, to, to build these instruments? Because by two, the year 2002, all the venture money had dried up. Remember that was the post-internet uh, bubble explosion and then there was no money to be had. And so what did we do? So what did we do to recover? 
I just I mentioned some of that. Agility, um, we changed our market focus. At that point, we suddenly realized that speaking to the customers was incredibly important. We found new customers, found out what they wanted, modified our instruments to make that happen. And that clearly worked out very well, semiconductor fab lines and environmental agencies. The thing that changed for us completely was we found new angels. DARPA, I just mentioned, DARPA found us. Most importantly, I found several ex-Bell Labs people in DARPA, which was clearly an, of enormous value, that, that having credibility with somebody who has money has, that has enormous value. And they posed us a very tough problem. Tough problem was convert a 175-pound instrument to a 20-pound instrument. I didn't tell you that we didn't succeed. We came down to only 40 pounds, but they were happy because at that 40 pounds, you have lost an enormous amount of weight, and, and, and their view is next, the next iteration will get you down to where you need to be. And as you saw on the, the last slide, the next iteration did get us down to, 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 to 20 pounds. Um, what that allowed us to do, that forced us to do, was to change our technology, technology focus, getting away from CO2 laser-based systems to quantum cascade laser-based systems. And as I mentioned, at that time, QCLs were still laboratory curiosity. In two years, QCLs became practical lasers for a variety of applications. And as I said, now at that point, angels came back with newer problems. As I said, the problem now is protecting aircraft from shoulder fire missiles. And new customers, defense and homeland security. What's so good about them? For them, security matters. Money is not the problem. Problem is making sure that an airplane that costs $200 million doesn't get shot down. And so the, the, the equation has changed. I still am looking for those applications where we can insert quantum cascade lasers into a very large volume market. Um, I think we have found one. Um, uh, it's still a very nascent market. This is uh, measuring carbon dioxide concentration in a variety of situation within a hospital, especially for, for patients undergoing surgery. Carbon dioxide measurement is the critical way by which you can determine the health of the, health of the patient. And so to be able to do this in real time, every single breath by breath, it is going to be very important. So what made the difference? The things that made the difference was agility in technology, agility in marketplace, agility in customer focus. We, we had to change our number of people, kind of people we had completely. We've hired the best QCL technologies, and that has allowed us to become the finest supplier of highest performance QCLs in the world. <clears throat> um, with the help of DARPA, we are able to find new customers. And one of the things that, that I find somewhat um, less than satisfying is Agencies like an NSF, great agency, but they don't have the connection with the real world. A project manager there cannot and doesn't have the capability of understanding what will happen if this research area was successful. There's got to be a change. You've got to have different things that happen at different times. Not that everybody should become an applications person, but at least you have some idea so that you can point it to somebody else to make something happen. Customer focus is clearly important. I think the bottom line is we realize that customer is the king. And that this has now happened at every level of the company. 
because the customer makes payday happen. There is no substitute for that. We still publish. We still publish in the best journals. But we never lose the central notion. Don't lose a customer. Because if you lose a customer, he'll never come back. He or she will never come back. And there are two parts to it. Unlike doing R&D, where the results that you promise to NSF, DARPA, or whatever it is, are on a best effort basis. You're going to do your best to get to that point. But if you're selling a product, that doesn't work. Customer has paid you for a particular performance, and you better meet that. Not only that, but you better meet that. You better meet it on time. Because a customer who walks away because you missed the deadline of delivery will never come back. If you provided with the customer with a slightly lower performance QCL, lower performance device, they'll be angry at you. They'll come back. They'll make you fix it. But they won't walk away. So never, never miss a deadline. So something very difficult to teach to young people, PhDs who come out of, come out of university. Deadlines are, are very important. So here is my final question to you. You be the judge. Did we do it right? Could we have done it better? Could you have done it better? Um, and so with that, I'll stop here and respond to any questions that you have. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Patel, for that uh, uh, very interesting lecture showing the evolution of technology and, and Pranalytica. Uh, and again, on behalf of the entire uh, Davis community, I'd like to welcome you and, and Sheila to our uh, Davis campus. Great to have you both here. Uh, I'd like to go back to your um, own life, if I may. You were um, 19 years old when you earned a bachelor's degree from Pune University in 1958. A year later, you obtained a master's degree from Stanford, and two years later, at the age of 22, a PhD. So clearly, you grew up with a passion for academic research. Where did this come from? Well, you know, um, the, uh, I've never thought patience was a real virtue. And I think if you want to get something done, you better do it now rather than tomorrow. So that's one. Number two... Um, living on a graduate student's stipend was not, a, not great fun. <laughs> and, 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 and wanted to have some real money so that I can do something with it. So, so getting out from Stanford early was a good thing to do. Um, but, you know, th- 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 uh, as, as, as all, all uh, uh, the stories have a different uh, uh, sides to it, something that, that, that uh, clearly that I'd met Sheila the first day I went, um, I came on the Stanford campus and uh, didn't want to get married until I could support myself and her. So that's what that was also important. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you. Now, you joined Bell Labs in 1961, and in 64, only three years later, you invented the nitrogen carbon dioxide laser. Tell us about the famous note that you left your assistant, Rudy, at 2 a.m. one morning when you obtained three-quarters of a watt power output from the prototype laser, and why was this significant? Okay, so um, I think the, the, one of the things that, that, that drove the development of carbon dioxide laser was the fact that the uh, first laser was operated in 1959, and if you remember, some of you probably remember an article in uh, Scientific American, the outside cover had this... Uh, what can best be described as a predecessor of Star Wars pictures, you know, lasers. 
shooting at all kinds of things and all kinds of th th wild things happening. And yet, by the time 1963 came along, lasers were still what I call milliwatt devices. Um, if you put your hand in the beam, it's not going to hurt you. And so clearly there was a big move towards getting higher and higher powers. Um, an interesting um, uh, anecdote about that is that at Towson Bell Labs, there are probably no less than 40, 50 individuals, PhDs, working on different aspects of lasers. And all except one, they were all working on solid-state lasers. And the idea being that solids are, have much higher density of whatever you want to work with. So in the end, in the end that's going to produce the highest amount of power. Um, so there's a minority of one, that's me, um, didn't quite uh, uh, believe any of this. Not because that was right or wrong, but because what most people forgot was that while you have much higher density in these solids, there is also a problem of removal of heat. And solids are not exactly friendly uh, places from, from where you can remove heat. Gases are a lot better. I can flow the gas at enormous speed, take away the waste heat. And uh, so um, it just so happened that, that, that uh, my limited knowledge of uh, quantum mechanics could, could allow me to do calculations only on a carbon dioxide molecule. I can't, can't deal with anything more than three, the, the three atoms. And so uh, that's what we started with. That's what I started with. And uh, surprise of all surprises, uh, the first calculation showed that it, it, that it should work very well. Um, how did I do the calculation? Remember, this was before computers. I had a, one of these uh, old Frieden calculators, which sort of went clunky, 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 and, 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 and um, but, you know, the, the calculation showed that it would work, and the first, first night we turned it on, I turned it on at 2 o'clock in the morning, the, something happened. What happened was there is a, you know, those of you who, are, who, who know how to measure power output, you put a power meter to see how much power is coming out. And so the uh, needle on the meter goes to the maximum. I said, there is something wrong with the power meter. I said, throw it away. That I'm going to put my, you know, how can the first time you turn it on, it can work so well? Come on. It's, I mean, it's just sort of, it's counterintuitive. So I put my hand in the beam. It's the biggest mistake I made. I got a really bad burn. The first example of unintentional surgery. <laughs> um, at which point I knew that, 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 that there was a lot of power coming out. And um, one of the great things about uh, uh, looking for solutions rather than looking for technology was this is 2 a.m. in the 2 a.m. I know there is a lot of power. How do you measure it? Well, you've got a beaker of water, a thermometer, stopwatch, and uh, calculate what the temperature rise was after a few minutes, and that's how you measure power. Of course, that's the, that's the most basic and fundamental way of measuring power output. But there, there was a fun time because, um, you know, I, I left home, went home, left a note for my assistant saying this is what had happened, and so the instructions for what to do next. And uh, I think, I think the, from then on to the time we made the first 100-watt laser was, I think, maybe something like four months, and at which point... Uh, um, it became clear that, that, that I will not be able to do that work any, any further because um, uh, that work was then picked up by the U.S. Army and the, uh, and the activity there was classified. I could, 
I was a was a, was a student visa, and so couldn't couldn't possibly get any get get any access to that. So uh, while I'm talking, I'll tell you another story. You know, this is so stories are fun. So in uh, late 1965, the news had reached AT&T, the parent company. Something had of real value had happened at Bell Labs. The, this is the guy that is putting out, making holes in wood, wood blocks and things of that kind. So about six senior vice presidents from, from the AT&T came, came by to see the, what was going on. And so I thought showing them around and, you know, have this, with, with, the, with, the, with the mirrors you direct beams at that wooden block and with the ceramics and everything else, it glows very bright. Pretty soon I smelled something burning. One of the uh, vice president's tie had been cut into exactly the two because there was about 5% reflection from something which, you know, that he just happened to be in the path. And uh, so now here I'm 26 years old, um, student visa. Um, uh, I said, here, here, go, here goes my career at Bell Labs in flames, literally. <laughs> and so I apologized to this man profusely. I said, I'm really sorry it happened. He said, he said, not to worry. This is the best thing that has happened. I'm going to take that cut piece of tie back, frame it, and tell people from FCC, because they always badger, used to badger AT&T about why are you spending money at Bell Labs. And he said, I'm going to show them what, what great things have happened. So uh, I said, my job is saved. <laughs> Incidentally, he did frame it. That, that I happened to see him several years later. And, uh, and it, it was in his office. Ty cut in it too, with an with inscription at the bottom which said, great things happen at Bell Labs. Well, that's a great story. And I guess we're glad you did not have access to a more powerful computer. <laughs> that's right. right. <laughs> now, uh, you became this new Lasers um, staunchest advocate and... Uh, look for new applications for this device with many, many impressive uh, uh, applications. And today I think there's more practical uses for the CO2 laser than any other type of laser. So can you tell us about a few applications you did not expect that you were surprised by? Okay, so um, I, th- I think the, the, um, the most obvious applications are clearly materials processing and surgery. They are very widely used. You cannot buy an automobile today whose white body, white body is anything other than an engine, is not welded using it's either CO2 laser or some other type of laser, but mostly CO2 laser, because it is the lowest cost per watt laser that's around. Things that I don't know, and I think this is a... Um, the most unusual example of, of this was... Uh, nobody, I hope nobody smokes here, but the... The cigarette companies make tiny holes in the filter all around so that when you inhale, fair, fair amount of air gets in there to reduce the concentration of smoke that you, that you inhale. Those, those holes are drilled by using a CO2 laser. So, uh, so that, that's one application that, 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 that I didn't think of. Um, <laughs> second application, which I thought of but never made money, was... Uh, uh, some years later, uh, I, uh, I came across uh, unprocessed macadamia nuts. Now, I don't know if you have seen a macadamia nut in a shell. It's an incredibly hard shell, very, very difficult to open. So I said CO2 laser would be the ideal thing to do that. <laughs> and you know, so sure enough, uh, um, I tried it out. It works beautifully well. 
except that it's not cost-effective. What I missed out one was the use of CO2 laser for peeling potatoes. Now, this, you know, now, and, and a, a very, very important application for Campbell Soup Company. Campbell Soup Company yearly uses upwards of 10 million pounds of potatoes to make it into various soups. The way potatoes are peeled with a blade, you lose roughly 5 to 7% of the meat out of 10 million pounds. That's a, that's a lot of potatoes. So um, somebody figured out what you need to do is to take a high-power CO2 laser, flash it. What happens is the, the color of the skin is different from what's inside. Outside blows off, and that's it. And you've got Pareto without skin left behind. So didn't think of it. Now, had I thought of it, I would be rich beyond my imagination. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell us that you could open the macadamia nuts and roast them, but no, that... Yeah. Now, during your early years at Bell Labs, uh, you enjoyed the research-rich uh, environment in the United States um, when, in the 60s, our government, who was reacting then to Sputnik, poured a lot of resources into education, into research, particularly engineering and physics. Um, it was a great time to be a scientist, undoubtedly, because I think the country believed that technology could be used to solve problems. Today, we seem to have lost that knack as a nation for investing in technology, what, in your view, must we do to reignite that passion for using technology to solve problems? Okay, so um, I, think, I, think, I don't think the country has lost the uh, understanding that technology will solve problems. I think the, the probably an underlying issue here is we have enough technology to solve the problems that are at hand. What people don't understand, and I think, I think that's something that politicians and people, people who make budgets need to understand is that today's tools will not solve tomorrow's problems. And tomorrow's problems are always going to be different. And for that, you need the next generation of well-trained, well-educated people. And if you don't have an infrastructure that supports research, development, experimentation, you will not be able to find the best people to, to carry out that activity. And the day you lose best people, you're lost, you're lost the game. So I think, I think it's, a, it's not so much that people don't want to invest, but there is a belief that there is more than enough today to solve today's problems, which, probably, which is probably right. But that doesn't address a central issue. Tomorrow's problems are going to be different. Now, going back to Bell Labs, um, you rose rather quickly through management uh, in, in 67. Uh, you once explained that as a Bell manager, you were judged not on the basis of your own past accomplishments, but on your ability to hire people who were smarter than you were, which must have been really hard. But, <laughs> but clearly, you were an amazing judge of talent because six of the people you hired at Bell Labs went on to win Nobel Prizes. What was your secret? Well, you know, the... Um there are, um, at Bell Labs, um, either I hired people directly or I nurtured them. I think seven, maybe eight people in that category got Nobel Prizes. Um, I don't think there is a record that's matched by anybody else at, at, at Bell Labs. But it has less to do with me and more to do with them. Because I think, I think the, the identifying people with imagination, people with curiosity... That's, that's what you need. Um, 
anybody can do his or her PhD dissertation over and over again very easily. But very few people are able to ask questions like, what if? What, what's the next uh, step that I need to take to, to, to do something better? And many of these people fell in that category. When they came to interview, instead of telling me what they had done, they would tell me, they would ask me, what, what are the most important problems? I mean, where is, you know, I've been a graduate student for the last four or five years. My vision was limited by what my professor asked me to do. I'm going out into the real world. Tell me about where the hottest areas are going to be, not in terms of technology, but problems that need to be solved. Because problems that need to be solved focus your research, your development, your experimentation. And that was, you know, in some sense, that was a real strength of Bell Labs. You know, if anybody believes that Bell Labs carried out blue sky research, it's just not true. Yes, it did carry out blue, blue sky research, but it was guided by an overall desire to have technology developed which eventually meets the needs of AT&T. Sometimes they miss by a mile, like in development of CO2 laser, but then they made, they, they made up by collecting royalties for many years. Uh, in other areas, they were, what came out went directly in, terms, in, the, in the communications technology. But if you don't have that breadth, you can't focus on what you have in the middle. Now, the spin-flip Raymond, la- uh, Ray- uh, Raman laser, which you invented in '69, uh, allowed you to conduct high-resolution spectroscopy of molecular gases, which in a sense made you a pioneer in the field of atmospheric pollution detection. You supplemented this work in '73 by uh, measuring the stratospheric nitric oxide and the data brought to the nation's attention the problem of ozone depletion by man-made nitrogen uh, oxide emission sources. All these years later, atmospheric pollution continues to be a problem. So have we failed to pay sufficient attention to the data that you started generating so many decades ago? Um, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. I, I wish I did. Uh, but I think, I think the, um, the, the... In many ways, you know, if I come back to the spin-flip Raman laser, it's, it's a great technological achievement, it has zero commercial value. And, and you know, that, that sort of goes to what I mentioned earlier in this, one of my slides. It's got to be operated at room temperature, should be light, should be highly efficient, and met none of those requirements. What it did was it did do something of value for a limited period of time. And that, in some sense, was very important because uh, we already have a problem with uh, depletion of ozone layer. If Can you imagine what would have happened if, and I hope I'm not insulting Boeing here, but if there is no, no Boeing employee, if Boeing had succeeded in putting their version of SST into, into, into service. It was supposed to have flown roughly 30,000 feet higher than where the uh, SST flew, the, super, uh, the, the Concorde flew, uh, would have dumped a whole lot of nitric oxide in the stratosphere, just at the really the worst place. And we provided measurements, actual measurements in stratosphere, which showed that nitric oxide would be a real disaster. And you know, then I would like to 
say it, it, sort of in some small sort of way, uh, we are instrumental in preventing that from happening. Um, uh, I don't think uh, Boeing will appreciate this, but I think I think I think that there was a wrong solution for a wrong problem, and 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 being able to measure nitric oxide in real time in the stratosphere was what sealed the sealed the coffin. Now, in 1993, you left Bell Labs and became vice chanceller for research at, uh, at UCLA, a position that you held for six years until 99, and you continued to teach physics, astronomy, and electrical engineering at UCLA. What made you transition from industry to academia? I'm sorry. What, what was the driving force for you to transition from industry to academia at the time? Well, you know, I had been at Bell Labs for 32 years. Um, I could have plotted exactly how how things would have gone from then to my retirement in 19, would have been occurring in 2003 because 65 was the absolute retirement age, and what I saw did not appeal to me. Um, it was a good time to do something different. I was still still reasonably young. Going to a university was the was the was the only other other, other option, and I and I took it. Um, UCLA was a good place. It, I shouldn't say was. is a good place. Uh, uh, it, it still is a good place. Um, I, I don't want you to go and tell, tell, uh, tell the chancellor that I said it was a good place. <laughs> uh, we'll get you a faculty appointment at Davis if, if she does. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, and I think, I think the, the, the best thing that happened in, in, in some ways is... Uh, my stepping down and uh, returning to the physics department uh, as a professor because that's what allowed me to... Uh, is this thing working? Yeah. Uh, that's what allowed me to, to uh, contemplate starting the company because in some sense that is now my third career. And, uh, uh, and I'm truly enjoying it, enjoying it not because um, there is a potential for making money. That's the... the, that's the that that's small part. The real part is I'm able to do something here that I could not do at Bell Labs. Bell Labs, with many of its positives, had this absolute, you know, what, I wouldn't call it absurd, but pretty close to absolute um, uh, uh, boundary conditions on if the research people, somebody working in the research area, can take that technology to make a product to Make it get in touch with the customer, because that the other notion was it. There are other parts of Bell Labs who are who are responsible for development and subsequently taking to, taking to market as a product. You know as well as I do that that that, that there's something called not not invented here syndrome, and that worked in Bell Labs just as well as 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 well as it works almost anywhere else. And so, what we missed out, what I missed out on was this. Continuum of activities that takes you from research development to a product. I can do that now, you know, and I think I think um, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. And the biggest, the most important point is young people that I've hired, that we have been able to hire, enjoy it too. Because even though they came out directly from university with only research background, they understand. They see the excitement when they sit in front of a customer. And tell them this is what you have made. This is what your product is coming out. 
and the, the, and the, guys, the guy or the woman says, this, that's exactly what I want. And th- their face lights up. I mean, there, is, there is nothing like a feedback in terms of, in terms of what, in the contribution you have made to solving somebody else's problem. Uh, now, your many, many awards include the President's National Medal of Science, which President Clinton presented in 96 for, and I quote, fundamental contributions to quantum electronics and the invention of the carbon dioxide laser, which have had a significant impact on industrial, scientific, medical, and defense applications, end of quote. Just this past May, in fact, you were inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Which of your many honors has pleased you the most and why? That's a, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a good question because you remember the most recent one the most, right? <laughs> right. Um, no, the, uh, the, uh, the, the more seriously, I think, I think the two that, that, uh, that uh, stick in my mind, clearly getting the award from President Clinton was, was a highlight. Had it been any other president, it would not have quite that memorable because Clinton is a memorable person. He's an incredible human being. Um, again, I'll tell a small anecdote. Uh, two years prior to that, uh, when UCLA uh, celebrated its 50th anniversary, uh, Bill Clinton was a speaker, and uh, I was the vice chancellor for research, so he shook hands with everybody. And, and uh, at, uh, in, in the White House, when we were there, to, that he, he came by to greet everybody before the ceremony. Yeah, I told him, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. President, uh, you probably don't remember me, but uh, uh, you shook my hand at, at this occasion. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, what do you mean you don't, I, I don't remember? You are the fourth person with whom I sh- shook hands, which, was, which is absolutely correct. Which is absolutely, there is no way his aide-de-camp would have remembered, reminded in terms of where I was. So he clearly has absolutely fabulous memory. He's a people person. I had a small memento for him, which I gave him. And he holds it in his hand. The gate decamp says, Mr. President, can I hold it? He says, no, he gave it to me. It's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it, you know, it, it's, um, when you are in his presence, regardless of how many people are around, he makes you feel you are the only person in the room. And I think, uh, and, and Sheila, my wife, saw the same thing. She had never met him before. And he carried on conversation with for a good 10 minutes. You know, and he's an absolutely amazing individual. I wish he had run again. He could have run again. He would have been elected president one more time. Well, uh, please join me in uh, thanking Dr. Patel for an absolutely delightful conversation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.